don't you turn with me to Obadiah, and we will get started on this particular study. Obadiah is in the Old Testament. You have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I'll give you kind of a zone, if you would, um, to where how to locate. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, so I think we have a chance of finishing it tonight, so potentially. Um, Obadiah, I want to share a little bit and then we'll pray. Um, it's interesting because we have no definitive information concerning the person. You know, the other ones we, we have, like we're told that they're the son of or they're from somewhere, or we have other portions of Scripture that may reference another prophet or another person. So you can kind of take and kind of put it together, but I think there's maybe 11 or 13 mentions of the name Obadiah, but there's nothing definitive that it's this actual same person, which I find interesting. Um, Pastor Chuck Smith said something to this effect, and I loved it. Is, you know, the Bible is pretty much silent about this guy. And he says, it's amazing how much scholars have to say when the Bible is silent. <laughs> and it's like, that is so true. It, it doesn't say definitively. So that's what you work with. You don't have to read in by conjecture or presumption or assumption. You just, okay. And I want to encourage you, when you read through the Bible, we're told to... You know, be a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're to, we're to dig in and we're to study and to know it, but let's just not try to read into something that we're not told. Because I think that's where a lot of your, a lot of problems come from. A lot of division have come from within the body of Christ. Uh, a lot of cults have spread or come out of this wanting to have something more mentality. And so I just encourage you when you do your study and if it doesn't say, then just say, okay, all right, well, I'll just keep studying. And if I uncover more, that's great. I'll uncover more. So um, let's pray. And then we're going to get a little background on this letter, book, prophecy. And then we'll dig in. God, we do thank you for this time to gather. And Lord, as we hear reports of various things happening around the world, whether it's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, and war, famine, and rumors of war, and so much taking place, Lord, all the time. Maybe we just hear more with the technology and the rapid transmission of information, but ultimately we believe, God, you want us to be aware of the world we live in and know where we're going, to know what the grace you've extended, the work you've done, the salvation you've accomplished, that we would realize we are in this world, but not of this world. And so God, with that awareness, would you even walk us through your word and teach us that as we would learn and grasp your truths, as we would realize your presence in our lives, as we would see your redeeming work in our lives, Lord God, we would be encouraged, Hope would be awakened. Where there's discomfort, you would bring comfort, Lord. Where there's discouragement, you bring encouragement, God. With hope, love, joy would be experienced in such a way that we would exalt you, God. We do lift up those who are suffering and hurting. We know many, even in our own community and you know, within our church family, as you know, God, that are 
just dealing with the loss of loved ones, a time of the grief, a time of mourning. More they, they are mourning, and yet they realize their loved ones with you. And so, God, we just uh, pray a special blessing for them, Lord, to experience your touch, the awareness of your presence, that you would carry them through at this time. Thank you, Lord. We pray for those who are in need of a healing touch by you, the great physician. God, we're thankful for what you have brought information-wise and awareness-wise to the medical field. But we realize and recognize you're the one that gives them wisdom and understanding, and you work even in ways that are beyond the, the normal approach of Western medicine, God. You do miracles. You are the one who knows our needs in emotionals, needs, physical, spiritual, Lord. And so we ask for your healing touch according to your will for your glory, God. You know those of us that need that healing touch right now. You know what we're going to experience in the days and weeks or months to come. Thank you, God, that we can come boldly into your throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. Thank you, God that we can cast all of our cares upon you, for we know you care for us. You're so good. You're so good. Thank you, Jesus. Teach us your word tonight, that we may know you in a deeper way. In your name. Amen. So Obadiah. Go background a little bit. The brothers, Esau and Jacob. You familiar with those two? Esau and Jacob. Trouble from the start. Uh, strained relationships between the brothers, to say the least. Um, later in their lives, they make some amends, and you'll find this in Genesis. But it really didn't carry over the way they worked some things out and seemed to tolerate each other. Um, it didn't carry to their children and grandchildren, the generations to come. They the Esau will be called later be called Edom. Um, Jacob will be called Israel. So you have the Israelites and the Edomites. And the Edomites, you can see if you look in Genesis 36, we don't need to, we're not going to do it now, but it lists the family of Esau. And the Edomites were a constant, um, they were just an aggressive enemy of the Israelites. Moses had to deal with the Edomites when, as he led the people to the promised land. You may remember the story. Moses, in desiring to go where God was leading him. Now, the land of the Edomites would be on the east side of the Dead Sea in the southern portion. And so Moses is leading the promised land. He needs to pass through the land of Edom. And so he, he requested passage through the land. Moses promised they would not graze their livestock extensively, wouldn't water their livestock. They just would promptly pass through. If they did, you know, stop or have to stay overnight where they'd pay for anything that was, you know, used on the land. And so they just were going to, if they permitted, they'd let them go through. And in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21, we're told that the king of Edom met the nation of Israel under Moses' leadership. They met them with a show of military force denying that request, saying, nope, you're not passing through. You have to go out and around this land, which was a really difficult thing to say the least. Uh, the Edomites 
were arrogant. We're going to see it from this passage in Obadiah for this, this section we'll read today. They were high-minded in that they thought they were above and better than others, especially better than the Israelites. What's interesting, though, and make a note of this, because as we go through this, we want to be thinking through you know, application in our lives. We didn't live back then, but this, according to 1 Corinthians, these Old Testament stories, these things that have happened before us, are there for our benefit, for our learning, you know, that we can actually take hold. Oh, note to self, don't do it that way. Be aware of this. Well, what's interesting enough is that God instructed the Israelites to take the high road relationally. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, he said, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Now, he didn't give that instruction that we know of to the Edomites that specifically. I think in part they wouldn't listen to him anyway. You know, the instruction wasn't given to them, it was given to the Israelites. Throughout the history of Israel in the Promised Land, the Edomites had been antagonistic enemies. They would join in with other nations that attacked Israel. If an enemy attacked from the north, then they would come up from the south and, and they would, you know, mount their own, an attack of their own, or they would join as a confederacy with these other nations. They were always looking for an opportunity to just go out and try to defeat Israel. And so they were perpetual enemies of Israel. Edomites, as we consider this, are a picture of the flesh with Israel being symbolic of the spirit. So this country, historically, as you have in your Bible, as you look through, it's actually from in Genesis, even through um, Deuteronomy, there's portions that address this issue, and even in the Psalms, as we'll see tonight, you realize that they were opposed to God's design, God's people, which is our flesh, the spirit and the flesh. When you're born again, you're born of the spirit. So the spirit and the flesh, we're told, are at en enmity, against each other. They're, they're functionally, the, the flesh especially is aggressively opposed. And so there's that battle we see there. Edom is symbolic of nations that are adamantly and aggressively against Israel historically. We know that, you know, that actually happens right now. You know, there's this thing, what do they call the ununited nations or whatever it is, you know. I mean, there's just this, this gathering of nations that that they have one goal for the most part, at least 60% of them, oppose anything Israel. They're, they're aggressively, they're constantly going, oh, no, it's always their fault, it's always Israel. Which is it's just it's symbolic, it's funny, it's interesting at least, I don't know how you could say funny, but historically, nations have always been opposed to Israel. And it's not because they were, and this isn't the factor, because other nations are arrogant, it's not because they were arrogant, now, they were God's chosen people, and there were signs and times that Israel publicly seemed to be a little puffed up. But what nation isn't puffed up? So you can't say it's because of that the other nations were, un, were opposed to them. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual reality. God has said that those who align and those who, you know, bless Israel, I will bless that nation. And those who go against Israel, what's going to happen? You're going to fall. You're going to, you will bring a curse or basically bring a downfall upon that nation. So the background for that is the reason I touched on this with Esau and that. Obadiah is really God speaking about the coming judgment upon Edom. 
the Edomites. So let's begin there in uh, verse 1. Like I say, it's a very concise, uh, brief portion of Scripture. And yet we're going to see there's some things that we, we're going to apply this one, I believe, a little different than other prophecies. But there's, a, there's the, the fulfillment that's specific to the Edomites, but then there's the application for each generation. Let's just jump right in. The vision of Obadiah. So God give him, uh, if you would, when it's conveyed as a vision, it's communicating that there, there's even potentially some uh, an eyesight where he's seen something, that God opened his eye to something. He showed him something specific. You know, he brought him the understanding. So there's this vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. So it's a very stern declaration that's brought forth. Behold, verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. In September, I was able to travel to Israel, as many of you know, and we were able to uh, go to a place, some pronounce it Petra, others pronounce it Petra, this city of rock. It's interesting, it's red rock. And you may know that Esau, Edom, speaks of red. Many thought Esau, and accurately so, spoke of his red hair. That's why he was named that. But this people, they were there in that area where Petra is carved. They lived among the cities. And so Petra, you know, the one theater is the one that you see most frequently. It was at uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know there's a couple different movies and stuff that have made there. If you haven't seen it, you should just check it out. We got to walk down through there, and it's a little over a mile from where you start down through this canyon, and it's a very narrow canyon. It's, it's at least 100 feet up. So it was, it, was a very, it was a fortress, really. Now, that didn't actually get developed, but we see and visit now. It wasn't developed to some quite, you know, it's probably around, I'm not positive on when it was cut and carved. There was other cities there or other parts of it, probably around maybe four or 500 um, BC, I'm not positive. The point being, we have that reference point. It was a walled city. It was above. You couldn't. It was the, the thing that made it so amazing is you had no way to, to, to bring an attack to take it over because you had to go through this narrow canyon. And going through the narrow canyon, gravity works. So it's a simple military strategy. Just roll stuff down on top of people down in the bottom. It just shuts it down. So it was an interesting thing. But it, not only were they built on the cliffs, and even at the time that's referenced here, they, they built on the mountaintops, and in, in, in a sense of cliff dwellers, and it was just, it's a fascinating um, lifestyle, but they actually seen themselves as above people. So not, was it, not only was it their housing and their city work like that, but their attitude was we're above people. So you see, when it says here, I will make you small, um, I will bring you down. It says there in verse thing, you will be real, who will bring you down to the ground? 
though you ascend as high as the eagle, like you're above everybody else, I will bring you down, says the Lord. There's something in this first portion to catch our attention. It's in verse 3. This was the problem. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You know, um, pride comes before the fall. We know that. And so the pride of their heart, they've seen themselves as so much better. They, that what the deception was they believed what they wanted to, to think and believe. Now, we know that doesn't apply just to the Edomites, correct? That wasn't just a one specific nation or one time in human history. That's a condition true to humanity. That's something that we have to be aware of. Has God given us direction? Is he showing us how to do something? Are we individuals that have an awareness of the, of the God of creation, but pride has deceived our hearts? Because it's a hard one, even as I share that, it's almost pointless to say it. <laughs> because when you're prideful, you're not listening. <laughs> you know, the self-deceived is the hardest to reach because you go, yeah, that's so true. I know somebody who needs to hear it. And you email a friend or something, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's like, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. But here's what's cool. It's why we look into the Word, why we worship when we gather, why we, with all our faculties, as near as we would know how to do, we petition God to hear our prayers, to soften our hearts, to bring humility into our lives, because we want to be more like Him. And so when we do that, we're saying, okay, God, I don't, I don't want to be this prideful person. I don't want to, this potential is among all of us. I don't want to be deceived by the pride of my heart. And so, my encouragement to you is when God shows you something, don't call it small. Because that's usually where it starts. It's usually not some big, huge, arrogant in point of indifference. It's usually it's just a small little seed of pride that's now able to grow. And the next thing you know, um, like the Edomites, we start exalting ourselves. And we put ourselves above other things. Verse 5. If thieves come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how will you be cut off? Will they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. So in verse 5, he's saying, if you're, if you're getting, if the people are, if thieves come in and rob you, they'll only take as much as they can carry, as much as they need. They'll leave some behind. Even when, you know, those who would, would ravage the land and take the grapes in this example, they would leave some behind. And basically he's saying, that's not even going to happen. You're going to lose everything, Esau, because you are so prideful. You're so, you know, indifferent. You're so indignant, literally. And so, how he will be searched out. Notice in verse 7, the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The interesting thing as we consider this, confederacy speaks of the joining of nations. They joined for a purpose. They were all independent, per se, and we've seen it several times in Scripture. You've seen it through history. But they realized we can't go against this one we want to go against by ourselves. We're not big enough. So we'll 
as a confederacy joined together, we'll go at them. Let's consider Psalm 83. Psalm 83, verses 4 through 8. It says, confederacy, confederacy against Israel. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, speaking against God, against Israel. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has all joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. So we find even in the Psalms this point in history this was taking place where Edom and these others had joined together and they're going to they're going to take Israel down and now God's saying your day is coming soon you are going to go down you are going to be the one those that you have joined we see there in verse 7 those who you've joined together with they they are going to even be prevail against you those who you have ate bread with they says they're the latter part of verse 7 they will lay a trap for you because that's the interesting thing when you're scheming with people who are scheming. But for too long, they're scheming against you because they're not really, you know, it's always something to be aware of. If I had this said to me years ago, you know, if, if someone will steal for you, they'll steal from you. And there's other ways you can apply that. If they'll lie for you, they will lie to you. And it's really a reality. It's the, it's the, logic if you would and it's really more the ways of this world when you have no accountability you can do what's right in your own eyes you can define truth as you want truth to be then you just move along and then somebody else does the same thing and next thing you know you have a collision you have a clash let's move on to verse 8 will i not in that day says the lord even destroy the wise men of edom and the understanding from the mountains of Esau. Then your mighty men, O Temen, shall be dismayed. To the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. city of Edom was Temen. In Job 2, Job has a, I don't know what we call them. I used to call them friends, but they're not really, I don't think they're friends. But Eliphaz was a Temite, Temanite. So Temen, this, this city in Edom, was actually known for their wisdom. You know, I don't know that they studied philosophically. I just think that they just, there was just a group that had a lot of wisdom. And so that one that spoke to Job was from here. And, but yet notice it says, your mighty men shall be dismayed. The wisdom that they had, even though it had a, a glimpse at spirituality, was mostly oriented around the natural realm. It will be cut off. It, it'll, it'll just come to an end. The mountains of Esau will be cut off for slaughter. Verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So it was this um, unforgiveness that drove Esau and his descendants. Their unwillingness to reconcile or work it out and we know already, we've seen that pride was at the core of it. But unforgiveness, it's one of those things that really does show up in generation after generation after generation. It's not that God passes it on, it's that people pass it on. You know, you share certain 
things genetically. You share certain things by way of, you know, relational engagement and communication. You share certain things with your children and grandchildren by way of personal values, family values. And if unforgiveness is one of those family traits, it's going to show up. It's going to be passed along. And it seems to be what was happening with this, these people because they were just so violent against Jacob. You know, to the point where when the Babylonians come in and, and took Jerusalem, the uh, Edomites came over and any of the people that were fleeing Jerusalem, they captured them. And some of them they even killed. And so here, it's almost like some people were getting away from the Babylonian pressure from the northeast, uh, actually. And so here, the Edomites come along, and they were taking the, people, the Israelites captive and killing them, and then even taking them as fugitives or slaves or turning them over to the Babylonians, working with the Babylonians. I mean, that's... That's an issue of unforgiveness. You know, that's a, that's a chip on your shoulder that's been passed along way too far. And what we want to remember as we read this historical reality, let's also realize we want to be aware of, you know, Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And this characteristic can show up in humanity. Pride, unforgiveness. Un, you know, I, I say it this way sometimes. Where the mind wanders, the body will follow and you focus on unforgiveness, you entertain hatred, and you will do hateful things. You may restrain yourself at one point and say, oh, I'm not going to do anything, but boy, I would sure like to punch them in the face. And eventually, as you entertain it long enough, where the mind wanders, the body will follow. And you will, literally, it's just a fact that you will do, and maybe not to the degree we see the Edomites, but violence against your brother. Shame will cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Verse 11, In that day you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them, which is what I was just mentioning with the Babylonian invasion. Verse 12, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. Gaze there, in verse 12 speaks of, you should not gloated over the day of your brother, the day, the day of their captivity or their demise, if you would. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, which is what I was talking about, about you know, capturing those who were fleeing. Nor should you have delivered up those among whom remained in the day of distress. So well, this is where we, we find ourselves saying, okay, well, now we can peace a little bit, but then we look and we don't really get to make anything definitive. And we're trying to figure out what part of history is Obadiah addressing. Many feel that Obadiah is probably written before Joel, which would put him as the earliest of the prophets, the minor prophets. So we're trying to figure out in history, and we're going to look at it as we wrap up this chapter, um, why it's maybe not so definitive. Because other portions of Scripture, you can kind of piece together the Assyrian captivity or taking people away, and you can kind of see by what the content is, you can go, oh, 
This would have had to be in this 12-year window or this, this point in time. But Obadiah is a very fascinating prophecy because there's really nothing that allows us to actually anchor it down and say, this is where it is. And, and so with that, we do know that he's addressing something because he's speaking past tense of something that had happened and that they, they didn't stand up for what was right. Matter of fact, they were eagerly and aggressively against Israel. And he's getting, they're getting called out on it. And what's interesting because it, now through verse 15 or 14, it's specifically addressing Edom and their relationship with Israel. But now it shifts. It kind of hinges a little bit, if you would. In verse 15, for the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. So now we see this kind of reminder that, yes, you guys have done this to Israel. As a nation, as a people, you have been this way towards Israel. And now he says, but the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Because we know there is something pretty special about Israel to God. It's not that they're favored. They're chosen for a purpose. They're chosen that God, the grace and the nature and the compassion and the love and the kindness of God would be shown on a people, on, on a family that grew into a nation, Israel. Did they deserve it? Were they more righteous than the other nations? I mean, if you've studied, you've seen that they were really messed up at times. I mean, they were into really horrible forms of worship. They were consistently disobedient. He would give them instruction. They'd do something else. They, they tested him in so many ways. He provided miracles that you and I would tell ourselves, oh man, if I walked across the Red Sea with a wall of water on each side, I'm going to be praising Jesus every day, every moment of the day after that. We would tell ourselves that. I would like to think I would react that way. But we see them see miracle after miracle, and they're like, are you kidding me? Quail and frosted flakes again today. I'm so tired of this stuff. They complained constantly. We were better off back in Egypt and we were getting beaten as slaves. Uh, are you kidding me? You got to go, who, how could you conclude that? How could you forget what God had done? How could you look and go, oh, God is not taking care of us? Well, I think if we slow down a little bit, go, hmm, maybe... I could have done it the same way they did. Maybe I could tilt the same thing. Is it possible that any one of us here tonight have had our memories slip just a touch? And perhaps forget a little bit of God's faithfulness in the past, where we've seen him answer a prayer. We've seen him do something. You go, wow. And we know, God, you did it. And then routine of life and the regular things and so and so. And the next thing you know, we're like, Where, where's your faith? God would say, you're, those of you who are studying through Mark in the small groups, uh, you're coming up on a section in chapter 4 where the disciples had seen the miracles of, of Jesus. Not all of them, but they'd seen a lot. They'd seen a lot. So probably a year and a half, almost two years into the following him. They're in this storm, because he says we're going to the other side. They're in this storm on the Sea of Galilee. And as they're in the storm, he's sleeping in the back of the boat, just stone out. And they're fishermen. They've been on the sea before. They're not rookies. They wake him and say, do you not care that we're perishing? They were terrified. They were terrified. 
And yet they've seen all these things he's done in their, in their moment. They're like, I, I don't get it. How could you be this way? And he stands up and calms the wind and the storm. Why did he have to stand up? He could have just like, and went back to sleep. But he stood up. He, he made a visible expression. He let them see his, how he, he was in control. And he, he calmed the sea and calmed the wind and said, where is your faith? How is it that you're shocked by this? And we know what they said. Oh, we get it now. It's not what they said. You know what they said? They were more terrified because they said, who is this who can command the wind and the waves? Because they're realizing day by day who he is. So that principle, the realizing the presence, the power, the perfectness of God is a day by day reality. And, you know, here now let's move back over and tie this together in verse 15. The day of the Lord is upon all the nations. You know, there's coming judgment. We, we call it the end times and the last days. And as we studied through Revelation recently, we obviously looked into the chronology and the various details. But let's carry this particular letter through because it has shifted from, you know, the judgment upon the Edomites. And now he says this is also going to have aware of that this is going to be the, the judgment on all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow as they, had, as they shall be as though they had never been. So basically, it's a principle summarized in, really in Galatians and in other places. You reap what you sow. The way you treated other people is going to actually be coming back on you speaking to the Edomites, but also to, to all the nations. Because, you know, the end times, these last days, is, is going to be his judgment on all nations. His blessing was offered through Abraham, the blessings of righteousness by faith. But many people, many nations historically have rejected it. And they will be accountable. There will be judgment. And so we continue along here. Verse 17, on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The last well-known uh, Edomite or of Esau would have been Herod the Great. And after him and his, that, that immediate generation, there's no, no record of the Edomites from there on out. It's very interesting. They were absorbed into other cultures, what few were there, and this prophecy was fulfilled um, almost a couple thousand years ago, that they, there was no survivor shall remain. It's just interesting. But we know also this speaks to the nations, at this, to, to all nations at the time of judgment. Let's continue along in this wrap this up because I don't want to tie it together with a couple things and especially uh, reality and a couple Psalms. Verse 19, the south shall possess the mountains of Esau and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead 
And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then uh, deliverers or saviors, some translations say, shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I believe this is speaking to the last days, the, the final judgment. So there's prophecies, as I've mentioned, there's the, um, the immediate, which this one doesn't contain that as much. It's just a, a de declaration to those enemies, specifically Edomites, uh, the enemies of God. So there's the, the eminent, there's the immediate, which is kind of following right after, usually really close in a contemporary sense. And then there's the ultimate, which is what, what we see in verse 15, speaking of this ultimate time when all the nations will be judged. Now, let me mention something, a few things about this particular uh, uh, prophecy we've read. The content, as I've said, of this prophecy doesn't give us any specific definitive point in history. Uh, Obadiah as a person is, is basically unknown. And I believe this helps us to apply the prophecy. What I mean is God will conquer his enemies. He's using specifics and showing, but he, he will conquer his enemies. And those who go against him will be defeated. It's true for nations, which of course are made up of individuals. The principle is true for individuals who go against God. Prideful individuals, prideful nations will experience the judgment of God. It may seem in the moment they have everything going for them, but their world will come apart. Put yourself as an Israelite. When, whether it's the Babylonian captivity, which was prophesied to you why you're going into captivity, because as a nation you were rebellious, but even as you're working through that, and maybe you're one of the remnant that really is seeking God in a nation that's mostly contrary to God as far as Israel. And then you have these Edomites who are high and above everybody. Everything works for them. Life goes good for them. Things are going well for them. They come in and maraud and take over and attack, and then they go back home, and they, they seem to win every stinking time. Can you relate to that? Can you think, like, man, what is going wrong here? How come if God's in control, all this stuff seems, he seems to be losing. It's fourth and 50, fourth and 25 every time. You know what I mean? Like, what's going on? Let's go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. So that's an important promise and statement. God is good to his people. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I honestly don't know of anybody who hasn't experienced this. Maybe they don't verbalize it or they want to kind of shelter it a little bit. There's moments, whether it's on a news headline or something at work with a promotion or just life. You, it's just like, man, I can't. I mean, I work harder and harder and they get more and more and I slip back. I, this is ridiculous. I don't understand how this has worked. I, I, and he says, you know, I almost stumbled. Literally, I almost wandered off course. I almost it tripped me up. 
For there are no, verse 4, there are no pains in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride, think back to the Edomites, serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. We hear that so much. We see that so much in the world today. Whether it's the technologically elite, you know, big corporate people that have you know, billions and they talk like they somehow run the planet somehow. And they just, they just seem to be oozing with pride and everything they touch turns to gold. You know, they just they you know they just start up something, and next thing you know, they have Tesla. You know, and then they buy Twitter. And I, I'm not picking on him, Elon specifically, but there's just that there's just this elite sense that every it just everything goes well for them, and we 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 can't help but notice that from a from a natural sense, and go, man, they they have more than heart could wish, and they they speak loftily like there is no God. Come on, move beyond that archaic, you know, traditionalism. And get with the times and understand science and, and know theory and all these things. And, you know, because somehow that eliminates God. And they speak loftily like there is no God. They set their mouth against the heavens, which you hear it time and time again. Verse 10, therefore his people return here and waters are of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? There's no knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are the ungodly. Who are always at ease, they increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. I correlate this and connect this to the life that you would be living as an Israelite over the years where the Edomites were constantly winning. And yet you were the one that God had called. This is the work that God's doing. He, he set it up. But yet they seem to be winning all the time. And of course, it's easy to make the connection in our own lives. Just some of the examples I've given in your life as you've lived it, you realize, man, do I gain any ground? And I think it's important that as Isaiah was invited, we have to receive that invitation as well. Isaiah was invited by God to come now. Let us reason together, you and I, thus saith the Lord. Because it's like you can't hide these thoughts. You, you can't be embarrassed by them to the degree like, I don't want to talk to God. I shouldn't even be thinking this way. Guess what? He already knows you're thinking that way. <laughs> it's best just to own it. And go, God, I don't, it just frustrates me. I don't understand. I mean, I, I get some of these things, but it just seems so unfair. And here's the thing to remember. It is. It is unfair. There's nothing about this world that's fair. Him going to the cross wasn't fair. God rescuing us from our sins and our, our rebellion and all this, it's not fair. He shouldn't have had to do that. So, but nonetheless, it's just the world we live in right now. Let's continue the psalm because it, it brings us to what I think we have to realize. Verse 15, if I, had said the, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. He didn't say, then I understood how it's going to work out for me. 
then I understood their end. Whether it's this seemingly perpetual power of the Edomites or all the nations that seem to be adamantly against God, historically against Israel, even currently against Israel, currently against Christ, against Christians. Continue with verse 16, when we consider their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. For those who have put their hope and confidence in this world, and I've been with some in the last moments of their lives, where they've trusted everything in this world, and they have just had everything work in their way. But there's a terror in their eyes, and a, just a disturbance of their soul when they're about to depart, and they realize they've put in faith in this world. They've, they've put their hope in the things of this life. And it says here, they just, it slips away so fast. They are consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. What they've held up, you will crush. Moving on, verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. So here's this interesting a psalm that carries you through life in a sense of just observing and being truthful and realizing and understanding heart and mind and confusion and then going, oh Lord, I was wrong. Because I was seeing from a temporal perspective and I wasn't seeing with eternity in view. I was looking at this from just this sense and, and having a kind of a poor me party and going, it's just not fair. What if they're eternally separated from God? What if they, and they are, those who reject Christ have rejected God and said, I don't want to be with you now, and I don't want to be with you for eternity. Ultimately, that's what hell is, being separated from God. Everything good, everything about God, you, he, he honors your demand when you say, I don't want that. I don't need that. I'll just do life my way. Then you get eternity oh, completely separated from him. When we think about what that means, it, it vexes our soul. Like, oh, Lord, I do not want to take that perspective. Because guess what happens? If we allow ourselves to kind of be more judgmental, we become unforgiving. We become hypercritical. We become un-Christ-like. And we, and we can justify it. Most judgmentalism, a form of legalism, is justified by logic and supported by Scripture. Not that Scripture supports it, but you find Scripture to support it. Does that make sense? Has God not said, did not the devil use Scripture to try to deceive Jesus? Didn't he use Scripture, in a sense, in the Garden of Eden? Didn't God tell you this? Quoting, so to speak, the Word of God, he wasn't out of context. Do you see what I'm saying? You want to realize, man, I don't want to let my perceptions and all these things pull me. I want to make sure, we want to make sure, I want to be right where God would have me. I want to have eternity of view. Verse 25, whom I ha have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My heart, or my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish, 
You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. We'll close with verse 28. But it's good for me to draw near to, the, to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Let's pray. God, so much to consider and ponder. Such a brief book in Obadiah, but your principles are so beautifully in place. Such a reminder from history and a, and a word to us even currently, Lord, that we not allow ourselves to wander off course, that we affix our eyes upon you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we confess that we can't just do that. We need your help. We need your presence and your power to capture our attention. We don't trust ourselves to stay close to you. We ask you to keep us close to you, God. That we would see things from eternity's view. That we would be effective in this world in the sense of your people sharing love, hope, comfort, truth. Sharing you to those around us. For we know many, God. There's no indication that they care for you. There's every indication that they're rejecting you. And near as we can discern, they do not know you. And so may you use us, God, in this season and this time for your purposes. Strengthen us through fellowship, encourage us through conversation, and awaken us to what you've called us to do, that you will be glorified. For our trust is in you, that we would declare all your works. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.